This morning, I want to talk with you about a very serious subject. I want us to talk about joy. And I want us to get serious about it. This is a passage that overflows with joy. Have you ever been so caught up in the joy of the moment you don't even know why you're celebrating what you're celebrating? You just know that this is a happy occasion. Uh, our family used to vacation with Jody's extended family. Uh, we would go to the beach. We'd rent this house, which basically is code for we would cram 25 people into a house built for 10 uh, with you know air mattresses everywhere. And we would spend the week together. And it was, it was always a great, great time. And one of the things that I learned very early about her family is this. If you need to leave at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, start saying goodbye at 3.15. Because it will take that long to say bye to everyone. We call it the Bell family goodbye. Well, this particular year, we were at a house and we figured out that due to the lay of the land, when the person left, they had to turn a right and get on a road that led them behind the house and then do another turn. So we developed a plan. A family had to leave the night before checkout. So after we had started saying goodbye, the first family that said bye snuck through the backyard, ran to be standing on the road so that when they drove back and went down the road, there would be more family members waving. And then, as they were waving, the other families went around and went two roads down. So that as they came by again, there was a second part of the family there waving and saying goodbye. Well, the night we put our plan into action, the family's leaving. I'm running, and I've been a part of the first group that stood on the road to say goodbye. But I wanted more joy. I wanted more goodbyes. So I ran to be with the second group. And so I'm running next to our cousin, Eddie. Yes. I'm not kidding. I'm running next to cousin Eddie. And I look and say, Eddie, do you know where we're going? He said, no, I don't have a clue. I just don't want to miss anything. I thought, that's the joy of the moment. That's what's happening here in Matthew. There is this huge, spontaneous parade that breaks out. Now, when's the last time you've been a part of a spontaneous parade? Parades just don't break out. But here it did. And I have this feeling that people are saying, what's going on? Where are you going? I don't know, but I don't want to miss it. That's sheer joy. When you read the cries of the people in verse 9, Hosanna to the Son of David. Those are cries of joy and of praise and of satisfaction and anticipation. You can't say Hosanna with a frown on your face. Try Hosanna. It's Hosanna. Praise be unto God. Now, the thing I want to look at this morning is what happened in between this joyous moment all right? This moment where there is this exuberation. To go to the cross then where the Hosanna stopped. The crowds are gone. And I want us to look at our lives and wonder, do we follow the same path? Do we start out at moments of joy, praise be unto God, Lord I am joyful. And then by the end of the week, we look like we've been baptized in lemon juice. And there's no joy. Now, I want to define terms before we dive into this text. To say that we are to be joyful, which we are, that's a fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit's dwelling in you, joy will be there, does not mean that you never grieve. Okay, I want to be clear about that. 
The idea of happiness says you never grieve. There's always a smile. Joy doesn't mean that there's not tears. Paul put it like this. We grieve. All right, 1 Thessalonians, you and I will grieve over loss. We should grieve over sin in the world. I read recently, and I thought the author put, put it very poignantly, our tears are our protest against a fallen world. We will cry. But this is what joy is. Joy is a hope that keeps the grief from overwhelming us. For lack of a better term, joy is a buoyancy that lifts us up, that says, yes, I grieve. Things are hard pressing upon me, but I'm not destroyed. Continuing with the beach theme, this is what I thought of. Have you ever been at a swimming pool and had a beach ball that's blown up? Right? You throw it on the water, what does that beach ball do? It floats. But have you ever played a game where you try to press the ball and to keep it under the water? What happens when you let go? It finds its way up again. To me, that's joy. It's saying that circumstances may be tough, but there is still a lift of our spirit that causes us not to fall in to the darkness that still clings to the light. Joy and hope are connected. And you find both of those in this passage. Because to answer the issue of what is the source of our joy and how can we maintain it, we have to deal with something very interesting here. Why in the world does Jesus... Right in on a donkey. I mean, look at the level of specificity that Jesus gives. He tells them in verse 2, go into the village in front of you. Now, I love this because I'm the type of person, tell me exactly what you need me to do. Disciples, don't go to the village behind you. or side. Go to the village in front of you. And immediately you'll find a donkey. This donkey will be tied up and it'll have a colt with her. You bring them unto me. If anybody asks you, you tell them the Lord needs it. Why in the world is Jesus so specific about a donkey? Keep in mind, this isn't his first time in Jerusalem. Following the chronology of the Gospels, this is actually probably his third time coming into the city. This is the only time there's a parade. This is the only time that he says, here, get me a donkey, I'm riding in on it. Now the, the answer to those two questions, why the donkey... Why does Jesus go to great pains to say, bring it to me and our joy? The answer to both of those is connected. That's why we dive into this text, to understand why. Now, to understand the source of our joy and the coming in on a donkey, we look at verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. So Jesus is intentionally fulfilling something that was prophesied before about who he is as the Messiah. To see what that is, we turn now to Zechariah chapter 9. Now this is a long passage. We're going to look over it, get an overview. I'm not going to read every verse in this, but we'll read enough to get a feel for what is going on. Now, there are some things you need to know to understand Zechariah. Zechariah is preaching about 500 years before Jesus. 500 years. Long time. And he's preaching to Judah when Judah is no longer a world power. In fact, Judah has been conquered. Things look pretty grim for the people of God. A nation called Babylon has come. They swept in and they've conquered Judah. And what Babylon did was this. They picked out the brightest, the best, the richest. And they take them back to Babylon to indoctrinate them into Babylonian culture. Best way to destroy your enemies is to make them like you. It's what Babylon works to do. 
By the way, that's still the way the world works today. But what's left in Judah are the poor, the powerless, and the hopeless. Just trying to eke by underneath the thumb of an oppressive regime. But God's not given up on his people. There's a change in leadership in Babylon. And slowly this new king starts allowing the Jews to return to their land to rebuild the temple. To start to work on their city. And Zechariah shows up on the scene to encourage the people as only as a prophet can. He says to the people, keep building. Obey God. Don't fall back into the sin of your forefathers. That's only going to lead to destruction. So chapters 1 through 8 is Zechariah saying, be obedient to God. God will complete his work. Don't stop. Believe. Trust him. Obey him. But then in verses nine through, chapters 9 through 14, the scope of God's plan changes. Zechariah in essence says to the people of God in Judah, if you think this is just about you, you're wrong. The scope of God's plan is worldwide. It encompasses more than you could ever, ever imagine. He doesn't just rule over Judah. He rules over all the nations. And you see this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. The burden of the word of the Lord is against. That's a way of saying the word of the Lord is against what God is saying is weighed against, and he lists these lands. The land of Hadrach and Damascus is, re is its resting place. Hadrach was one of the lands furthest away from Judah. It was kind of the edge of the empire. And guess what? God says, I've got a word against them. My word is resting against Damascus. Now look at the reason why. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. We don't understand how radical that is. In the day and age which Zechariah preached, as well as the other prophets, they believed that the gods that people worshipped were local gods. There'd be the God of Jonesboro, the God of Johnson City, the God of Elizabethan. And if Jonesboro rose up and conquered Johnson City, guess what? Our God is greater than the Johnson City God. But now Zechariah says, our Lord is sovereign over all that's something that would cause their jaws to drop. These other gods are nothing. Our God is sovereign. He has his eye on all of mankind. And then he starts another litany of cities. On Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre, Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust. And fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions. And strike down the power on the sea. And she shall be devoured by fire. He continues on through verse 8. He says God's going to judge his enemies. He's going to come and destroy those cities. Now, every word about these cities that God said came to pass because approximately 200 years after Zechariah had died and gone on, a man known as Alexander the Great came through the Middle East and guess what he did? He destroyed the cities of Damascus, Tyre, Sidon, Ashkelon, Gaza, and Ekron. See, our God's so great, he uses a pagan king to accomplish his purposes. Every word of it. 
So, can we sit back now and say, well, God's work is done? No, because Alexander was not the sum in. Because now, in verse 9 of chapter 9, there's another turn. He says, rejoice greatly because your king is coming to you. In other words, Alexander may have accomplished God's will and the destruction of God's enemies, but he is not the king that will bring about the kingdom of God. He is not the king that will establish the righteousness God desires. He is not the king who will come and usher in the page of prosperity and peace that can only be given by Yahweh. No, it is another king that will do that. It is the Messiah. And this Messiah will come in an odd way. Look at what he says in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Rejoice. Why? Your king is coming to you. Righteous. Having salvation is he. Now at this point, those who hear this are saying, yes, yes, yes. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Yes, say what? That's not how a conquering king comes. A conquering king comes on a war horse. A white stallion. And the, the king is arrayed in armor. And he shows his military might so that if anybody questions him, they know that the end will not be good. A king doesn't come right this. He comes in a, a war horse. Think about it today. How do leaders arrive? Limousines. Large black suburbans. The king, the prince, the president doesn't pull up in a Chevy Nova. That's exactly what's happening. The king doesn't arrive in a Chevy. What's going on here? You see, this king is different because notice he is coming. And look how he's described. Righteous and having salvation. Those phrases are synonymous. When we speak of God being righteous, it's not this passiveness where God is just in his holiness, not doing anything. Righteousness in the Old Testament is always an active characteristic. That's why it says God saves by his righteous right hand. He redeems by his righteousness. Salvation and righteousness are parallel. God's righteousness is activated as he saves his people, bringing them unto himself by removing sin. You see, God promises that the wrongs will be set right. That the darkness will give way to the light and he promises that when all seems lost, hope will be found. He promises and he delivers change. Now let me give you an example of that. Look back to chapter 9 and look closely at verses 7 and 8. Okay, I know I said 7 and 8, but look at verse 6. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. Now, that happened, once again, under, under Alexander the Great, a mixed people. There were Grecians that came in behind Alexander, and what was called Hellenization begins to take place. But then notice something else, verse 7. I'll take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. What? What God's saying is, I'm going to redeem them from their idolatry. They do not know me, but they will know me. They don't serve me, but they will serve me. You see this echoed in verse, the end of verse 7. It too. In other words, these areas under God's judgment will be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. In other words, these people that are the enemies of God are going to become part of the people of God. And that happened. It happened over, over 500 years later. 
In the book of Acts, Philip is going to preach, and he's going to preach in a place called Azotus. Azotus was a city rebuilt on the ruins of Ashkelon. So what happens? The gospel is preached in the area where the enemies of God's people had staked out their claim. And there are people who come to follow God who were descendants of those who survived the reign of Alexander the Great. You see, God works to bring his enemies to be his children. He reconciles us. He brings us out of the darkness into the light. He adopts us as children. That's why they're celebrating. You see, back in Matthew, whenever Jesus rides in on a donkey, whenever he comes in in this unexpected way, they are hearing echoes of Zechariah thinking, now he's here. You know why they were so worked up thinking Jesus had the power to redeem them from Rome? There was something very unique about this that happened just prior to his entrance into Jerusalem here that had not happened previously. The Gospel of John fills in the gaps. See, Jesus had been up in Galilee and he gets word that a good friend of his by the name of Lazarus is dead or is sick. Jesus holds up. He doesn't rush immediately to go to Bethany which is just outside of Jerusalem. He waits till Lazarus dies. Then he makes his way to Bethany just outside of Jerusalem. Now what does he do when he gets to Bethany? The people are wailing and weeping and they're crying. Where were you, Lord? Where were you? And Jesus goes to them and he says, move the stone out of the way. And I love how the King James puts it. Lord, he stinketh. He smells bad. He's been dead four days. Doesn't matter. Roll the stone away. And Jesus speaks a word and Lazarus comes out of the grave. Now, don't you think that word of that got around pretty quickly? Don't you think that the rumor mill started working in Jerusalem? This Jesus, he's been here before, but did you hear what he did with Lazarus? I know, I know. I talked with Lazarus the other day. In fact, word started to spread so much that the religious authorities wanted to kill Jesus and they wanted to kill Lazarus. Because, guess what? A man who's come back from the dead is a pretty powerful witness that Jesus is the Messiah. That's why the city was in an uproar. Jesus raises the dead. Lazarus is alive. This has got to be the one. Now, you're wondering, how does this get back to joy? He comes in and they're joyful. But here's where the problem happens. Their expectation was that Jesus was going to take care of Rome and start leading a rebellion against them. You see, to their thinking, their problem was Rome. Their problem was the high taxes. Their problem was the gross unfairness of the legal system. That's the problem. They didn't see that Jesus came to take care of the real problem. And that's why their joy went away. See, Jesus came to take care of the real issue. Now, there will be a day where the enemies of God kneel before God. There will be that day. Our God is just. But when Jesus came the first time, he came to take care of our real enemy, death. When Jesus came the first time, he came to take care of our real adversary, sin. When Jesus came the first time, he came to take the wrath of God that you and I could never stand to take. And because they didn't see that, they began to reject the Messiah. So you know what happens to us? 
we forget what our real problem is. If I were to ask you to take out a sheet of paper and to write down what is the biggest problem you are facing right now. How many of us would write down, my biggest problem is, I don't know George enough, George Washington. I need more money. How many of us would write down, my problem is my marriage. My problem is my job. I need a new one. My problem is the other person. Lord, if you could take care of them. But you know what we probably would not write down? My problem is my sin. See, we forget that the issue of anger that we have is not because of what someone else has done. The Bible says our issue of anger is because we want and don't have. Our problem of being dissatisfied is because we think we deserve something. Selfishness. And we forget that Jesus came to take care of those real problems. And when we forget that, we will see our joy begin to wane. We'll be like a young lady by the name of Jean Hilliard. A farmer woke up in 1980, Minnesota. He opens his door, and there on his doorstep is a young 19-year-old girl, literally frozen to death. The temperature was 22 degrees below zero. She had been on his doorstep for six hours. Found out later her car had broken down just over the hill in a blizzard. And she thought that his house was not far away. So she started to walk. Made it as far as his doorstep before she collapsed and hypothermia set in. He called the ambulance. They came, got her, got her to the hospital. He followed just to see who she was, what he could do to help. She lived. They, they can't explain why. Six hours and 20, minus 22 degrees, that's a death nail. The only problem she had afterward was blistered toes. That's it. No frostbite, nothing else. She made the rounds of the media. Tom Brokaw interviewed her. Reports were written. Newspapers, the girl who survived the blizzard. But life went on. Now, almost 40 years later, she talks about it and she shrugs her shoulders. You know, she says, it's just like I fell asleep and woke up in the hospital. Jean, they, she's asked, has your life been different? She said, no, not really. It's kind of just gone on. I want you to think about that for a moment. You should have died. You've been granted life. And your response is, man, why does that happen? Because we forget how precious life is. And we forget how precious eternal life is. You see, we need to be mindful of these things. We need to keep in our thinking that Jesus Christ has come to redeem us from sin. Yeah, the day will come. He will bring justice. I have no doubt about that. But our greatest issue is what takes place in the heart. There's a writer. He passed away several years ago by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's Russian. He was put in a gulag underneath the reign of Stalin. And he wrote a lot about those experiences. He wrote this. He said, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. In other words, if it were so simple that we could just point out all the evil people, send them away, life would be good. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. 
And who's willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? We can't eradicate the evil within us. That's why it's so, so persistent. We need someone to come from the outside who will come in and will humbly meet us where we are and redeem us. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He died on the cross to save us from our sin. He rose again so that we would be justified. So that our greatest problems of sin and death would be eradicated. So that we will know the joy. That's what gives us hope. Because even in the darkest of times, the believer can say, you know what? No matter what I'm going through, it cannot touch my eternal relationship with God. No matter what I'm going through in eternity, it will not really matter. We have a perspective and a belief that goes beyond the things of this world so that we have a joy, not in the things of this world, that will fade away, that will never fulfill what they promise. We have joy because our king rode in on a donkey to meet us right where we are and to say, I love you. And to die on our behalf. That's why we can have joy. I cling to the words frequently. What Isaiah wrote. A bruised reed. He will not break. A smoldering wick. He will not extinguish. See Jesus. Is the omnipotent God. But he came to redeem us as one of us. So what's the connection? Jesus came in on a donkey to show he is the humble king who, righteous, who is righteous and saves. And our joy is to be based in him. So where's your joy today? Where is your joy? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me.